Welcome to the QAV Podcast, episode 649. Now, if you're new to the show, welcome. My name's Cameron Riley. I'm one of the co-hosts. Normally on this show, I uh, chat with my co-host, Tony Kynaston. Tony's an old friend of mine, very successful investor, about his investment methodology, QAV, quality at value. And we answer questions from our listeners and our members And we talk about how to rationally analyze stocks and buy those that have a good track record of generating profits when you can get them at a discount to their intrinsic valuation. But this week on the show, on the free episode that you're listening to right now, I'm just going to talk a little bit about one of our mentors, certainly one of Tony's mentors for decades, one of mine for the last few years as we've been doing this show, Charlie Munger, who... If you follow investing at all, you probably heard last week that he passed away about a month before his 100th birthday. Charlie was, of course, Warren Buffett's business partner in Berkshire Hathaway for roughly the last 50 years. They'd been friends for quite a few years before that and uh, is renowned throughout the investing world, not only as one of the most successful investors in history, but one of the most, uh, one of the smartest uh, guys with a lot of wisdom, with a lot of wit, very articulate, quite funny, uh, particularly at the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meetings each year. Uh, so he passed away. There's been a lot said about him in the media, but no, nothing that really went into enough detail for me. So I've done a little bit of a bio on him in this episode, plus talking about him and uh, quotes from him, mostly coming out of the book, Poor Charlie's Almanac, The Wit and Wisdom of Charles T. Munger, which came out, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that, which I pulled out again when he passed away last week and started to reread it. So uh, yeah, let me get into Charlie Munger. The man Bill Gates called the broadest thinker I have ever encountered. That was in the wit and wisdom of Charles T. Munger, Paul Charlie's Almanac. So I'm going to start off with a bit of a bio on him, and then I might finish with just cherry-picking some of the quotes from him from his speeches. He was born January 1st, 1924 in Omaha, Nebraska. As a kid, he worked for Buffett & Son, a grocery store in Omaha, about six blocks from the house he grew up in, and the boss was Warren's grandfather. Now, as Charlie was six years older than Warren, they didn't actually meet as kids, surprisingly enough, because I think of Omaha, Nebraska as a two-horse town. You would have thought all the kids between certain ages knew each other, but no, they didn't know each other. Charlie had gone or left Buffett and Son by the time Warren also worked there some years later. So they didn't meet until later in life. Charlie was apparently a very big reader from early childhood and became fascinated with science after reading the medical library of his family doctor, Dr. Davis, who was a neighbor and a family friend. And Charlie's teachers described him as a smart kid who was also a bit of a smartass, always challenging teachers and fellow students. This is obviously something that started early in life with Charlie being a bit of a smartass. His grandfather was a respected federal judge and his father became a very prosperous lawyer. 
And during the Great Depression, these things helped out a lot. His immediate family, Charlie's immediate family, did okay during the Depression. Charlie's father actually belonged to a law firm. There's some story where they had to um, defend some local, I think it was a soap or a shampoo company, but it the the sort of outcome of the case was going to have an impact. I think it was on Procter and Gamble. So Procter and Gamble offered to like buy Charlie's father's legal firm out of the case so they could replace him with a big city firm to handle the case. Uh, the big city firm ended up losing the case. But Charlie's father got paid a ton of money to sit this one out, and they coasted through the Depression on that. But some of his extended family weren't so lucky. His uncle Tom had a bank in Nebraska that nearly collapsed, so his uh, Charlie's grandfather, his uncle Tom's father, came in and bought out the bad loans to save the bank, ended up getting his money back apparently, but it took a long time. So he came from some money, obviously not Munger money as we think of it now, but he came from some money in a family of successful judges and lawyers and bankers. When he went to university, Charlie initially chose mathematics as his major. While he was there, he became interested in physics and later in life, as we'll see, uh, he said that everyone should study physics because it demonstrates how sound theories can explain complicated concepts. When he turned 19, 1943, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps and was sent to study science and engineering, ended up studying thermodynamics and meteorology at Caltech. And then he went and studied law at Harvard where his father had gone. Apparently, he didn't finish any of his undergraduate degrees, and so Harvard rejected him. But again, family connections played a good role. He had family friend pulled some strings at Harvard, and they let him in. Uh, ended up graduating cumbersome laude and was one of the top of his class. And also apparently upset a lot of people when he was at Harvard with his abrupt attitude. A bit of a smartass even at Harvard. Instead of working in his father's law firm, he joined a larger firm in Southern California. This was his father's idea. He should go and work in a bigger city. And in college and in army, he developed what he called an important skill, which was card playing. And he used to say later on that he used his knowledge of cards in his approach to business. Here's a quote. What you have to learn is to fold early when the odds are against you, or if you have a big edge, back it heavily because you don't get a big edge often. Opportunity comes, but it doesn't come often, so seize it when it does come. And of course, I think of our cell triggers, particularly our rule one, which a lot of people struggle with, but that's the folding early when the odds are against you. I think that's exactly what that is. He was married fairly young, had a few kids, uh, including a young son who sadly became terminally ill with leukemia. And, and back then, I think this is the late 40s, they uh, didn't really have a cure for leukemia. They didn't know how to do bone marrow transplants. And his son died, broke his heart, obviously, and also broke his marriage at the time. He ended up getting remarried to a woman who also had a couple of kids from a previous marriage. They then had more kids 
for a total of eight, and he stayed married to that wife until she passed away in 2010. Now, he was quite successful as a lawyer, uh, started his own law firm, ended up becoming uh, Munger, Tollers and Olsen, MTO. But he was never really happy with the amount of money that he earned as a lawyer, so he started investing in stocks and also in the businesses of his clients, which was apparently a fairly common practice back then. In the early 60s, he got involved in property development in California, made a lot of money out of that. And he also set up an investment partnership like the ones Warren had. And this happened after he met Warren finally at a dinner party in 1959. So the story is Charlie's father had died. He went back to Omaha to deal with his father's estate. And you remember I mentioned the doctor family friend earlier on. The sons of, I think the doctor had passed away, but the sons of the doctor held a dinner party to welcome Charlie back. And they also invited Warren as a guest. Now, the the father, the doctor, had been an investor in one of Warren's investment partnerships. And apparently he said he invested in Warren because Warren reminded him of Charlie. Now, Warren had heard that story, didn't know Charlie, but figured he must be a good guy. Charlie had heard about this investment with this Warren Buffett guy and figured he must be a good guy too. Warren was 29 and Charlie was 35 when they met. Apparently that night, they discussed business, finance, and history, and pretty much fell in love. Here's a quote from Warren. He says, well, when I first met Charlie in 1959, when the Davis family got me together with him, Dr. Davis previously had often mistaken me for Charlie, and I wanted to find out whether that was a compliment or an insult. So when Charlie came home to Omaha in 1959, the Davises arranged for us to go to dinner. In fact, I think we had a small little private room with a few Davises in attendance. Sometime during the evening when Charlie started rolling on the floor laughing at his own jokes, I knew I had met a kindred spirit. Warren gets asked in the book, what are the secrets of his success, Charlie's success? Warren says, well, one time some attractive woman sat next to Charlie and asked him what he owed his success to, and unfortunately she insisted on a one-word answer. He had a speech prepared that would have gone on for several hours, but when forced to boil it down to one word, he said that he was rational. You know, he comes equipped for rationality and he applies it in business. He doesn't always apply it elsewhere, but he applies it in business and that's made him a huge business success. What other character traits do you think have contributed to his success? Warren says, I think actually it really does come out of Ben Franklin that he admires so much. I mean, there is honesty and integrity and always doing more than his share and not complaining about what the other person does. We've been associated for 40 years and he's never second-guessed anything I've done. We've never had an argument. We've disagreed on things, but he's a perfect partner. What would you say are his most unusual characteristics? Warren, I would say everything about Charlie is unusual. I've been looking for the usual now for 40 years and I've yet to find it. Charlie marches to his own music and it's music like virtually no one else is listening to. So I would say that to try and typecast Charlie in terms of any other human that I can think of, no one would fit. He's got his own mould. So uh, a, a lot to like about that. In the book, there's also a Q&A with Susie Buffett, uh, Warren's wife at the time. They say, tell us about Warren and Charlie first meeting one another. She says, the first night they met, Neil Davis had gotten them together at this restaurant 
And I'm watching these two people and I thought, did Neil bring them together because he wanted to see what happened when these egos clashed? Because you have these two strong, verbose, brilliant guys. It was amazing to me to see Warren get quieter and let Charlie take the lead. I'd never seen that before. Warren always took that role and I'd never seen anybody take that away from him. And he relinquished it to Charlie that night. It was unique. I'll never forget that evening. That was unusual. Well, Warren is usually so much quicker. He's just so much faster and smarter than everybody. I mean, it can't be helped. And here was Charlie taking off, you see. It was really fascinating to me. And then what happened after that is history. I think Warren felt that Charlie was the smartest person he'd ever met. And Charlie felt Warren was the smartest person he'd ever met. And that was unique to each of them. And it's continued to be that way. And so their respect for each other's intelligence was, I think, the beginning. You know, when they see the integrity they have in common and so forth, it's a match made in heaven. It's exciting. It's like chemistry. And I could see always when they were together. I mean, it's like combustion. It was really, really great. I think that Warren was an aberration in his family. Charlie, perhaps, was in his. And they just happened, luckily, to meet each other. So I love that, those stories. Now, Charlie left his legal firm after only about three years, but his name stays on the masthead to this very day. It's first on the masthead, even today when they have hundreds of attorneys. And this tells you a lot about the guy. When he left the firm, he didn't sell his shares. He granted them to the estate of his younger partner, Fred Water, who had died of cancer and left behind a wife and children. So I think that tells you a lot about Charlie Munger. Um, he always advised the firm, you don't need to take the last dollar and choose clients as you would choose friends. Over the years, Charlie and Warren kept up their friendship, frequent telephone calls and letters and so forth. Charlie, uh, Charlie's law firm was engaged by Warren to do legal work for him. Warren sent other clients there. And sometimes they would end up investing in the same company. Charlie kept building his investment firm during these years. Between 1962 and 1973, it grew at 28.3% CAGR compared to the Dow at 6.7%. But then in 1973 and 74, it fell 31.9% and 31.5% in back-to-back years. Kind of know how he feels. That's what the last couple of years have felt like for us. In 1975, it then rose 73.2%. So over 14 years, it grew 19.8% CAGR versus 5% for the Dow. But after this experience, Charlie, like Warren, decided he didn't want to invest funds directly for other investors. Too stressful in the bad years, I guess. So he liquidated Wheeler Munger, his investment firm, and his stakeholders ended up getting stock in Berkshire Hathaway. So that's how he ended up working as Warren's partner. They ended up um, going into business together in the mid-70s and obviously stayed together until Charlie passed away last week, 2023. So what's that? 50, almost 50 years they worked together. Now, Charlie, as I mentioned before, was a big fan of Benjamin Franklin. I think he read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography early on in life, and it had a big impact on him. At the 75th anniversary of Seize Candy, Charlie said, 
I'm a biography nut myself, and I think when you're trying to teach the great concepts that work, it helps to tie them into the lives and personalities of the people who develop them. I think you learn economics better if you make Adam Smith your friend. That sounds funny, making friends among the eminent dead, but if you go through life making friends with the eminent dead who had the right ideas, I think it'll work better for you in life and work better in education. It's way better than just giving the basic concepts. And I I can relate to that. Um, People are often uh, surprised with the amount of history facts I can recall, dates and events and those sorts of things. And I always explain, it's not because I have a particularly good memory for that stuff. In fact, I don't. I've got a terrible memory. But I know those dates because they're part of a story. They're part of a timeline because of the way that I do history podcasts. I tell a usually a linear story and I, I go into detail with that story and I kind of remember the beats of the story. It's like when you watch a film, right? You, you know there's what happens in the first act and the second act and the third act and you, you can remember details when they're part of a story. Our brains have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to be very good at narratives. Our brains work uh, with narratives as a, as a fundamental concept. It's how we understand ourselves. We create a narrative about ourselves, about the people around us, about our lives, and about the lives of our tribes and our nations and our religions, etc., etc. So our brains are really designed to handle narratives. And I've discovered with myself over the last couple of decades as I've been doing history podcasts that if I want to learn anything, I need to figure out the narrative. When we started QAV, the reason I built my own spreadsheet in the beginning was because I had to have the narrative of why these things were important. I knew I couldn't just remember the facts. And that's why when Tony came up with the cafe analogy early on in the show, it really helped me a lot too, because it was a it was a narrative. It was a story that I could remember and I could remember why the things in the story were important to the story. As part of his uh, philosophy of living simply, Charlie, like Warren, always lived in a modern house. He lived in the same house in California, I believe, for, I don't know, 90 years, (laughs) maybe, no, 70 years, probably up until he died. Instead of a really fancy house, Charlie's quoted as stating that in practically every case, they make the person less happier, not Less happy, not happier. A fancy house, that is. I think this is a quote from Wikipedia. Munger appreciated the utility of a basic house with few advantages to living in an ostentatious home. Munger appreciated modesty, stating, don't have a lot of envy and don't overspend your income. In Munger's last 2023 interview with CNBC, he credited his success and longevity to a long-held sense of caution and an ability to avoid all of the standard ways of failing. I've got some quotes about that a little bit later on. Uh, You've heard Tony talk on the show before about lattices, lattice work, and Charlie's multiple mental models. Here, these are some quotes from the uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac book from Charlie. Uh, I think this is from the speeches at the end of the book. What is elementary worldly wisdom? Well, the first rule is that you can't really know anything if you just remember isolated facts and try and bang them back. If the facts don't hang together on a latticework of theory, you don't have them in a usable form. You've got to have models in your head. 
You've got to array your experience, both vicarious and direct, on this latticework of models. You may have noticed students who just try to remember and pound back what is remembered. Well, they fail in school and fail in life. You've got to hang experience on a latticework of models in your head. And then he goes on and he talks about some of the models that you need. One of the first ones he talks about is probability theory. He says, by and large, as it works out, people can't naturally and automatically do this. If you understand elementary psychology, the reason they can't is really quite simple. The basic neural network of the brain is there through broad genetic and cultural evolution. And it's not Fermat Pascal. He's talking about the guys that came up with probability theory. It uses a very crude, shortcut type of approximation. It's got elements of Fermat Pascal in it. However, it's not very good. So you have to learn in a very usable way this very elementary math and use it routinely in life. Just the way if you want to become a golfer, you can't use the natural swing that broad evolution gave you. You have to learn to have a certain grip and swing in a different way to realize your full potential as a golfer. If you don't get this elementary probability into your repertoire, then you go through a long life like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. You're giving a huge advantage to everybody else. Other models he mentions are accounting, the five W's. He talks about a rule at the Braun Company in their communications where you had to use the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And you had to tell who you, you had to tell in your communications who was going to do what, where, when, and why. And if you wrote a letter or directive in the Braun Company telling somebody to do something and you didn't tell him why, you could get fired. In fact, you would get fired if you did it twice. He also talks about having a backup system, understanding how to do a cost-benefit analysis, the psychology of misjudgment, microeconomics, which he says involve concepts like social proof phenomenon, the benefits of scale, the efficiency that comes from scale, etc. And he talks about what he calls two-track analysis. First, what are the factors that really govern the interests involved, rationally considered, And second, what are the subconscious influences where the brain at a subconscious level is automatically doing these things, which by and large are useful, but which often misfunction? So it was part of his process of analysis in life to figure out what are the factors that really govern the interests involved in this business or whatever the principle was. And what are the subconscious influences that would probably make himself or other people get it wrong. Here's another quote from him in the book. And the most important thing to keep in mind is the idea that especially big forces often often come out of these 100 models. He said there's about 100 models that you need to know and that you need to figure out how they all work together. Where several models combine, you get the Lollapalooza effect. This is when two, three or four forces are all operating in the same direction. And frequently, you don't get simple addition. It's often like a critical mass in physics where you get a nuclear explosion if you get to a certain point of mass and you don't get anything worth seeing if you don't reach the mass. Sometimes in the, the forces just add like ordinary quantities and sometimes they combine on a breakpoint or critical mass basis. More commonly, the forces coming out of these 100 models are conflicting to some extent and you get huge, miserable trade-offs. But if you can't think in terms of trade-offs and recognize trade-offs in what you're dealing with, 
You're a horse's patoot. You clearly are a danger to the rest of the people when serious thinking is being done. You have to recognise how these things combine and you have to realise the truth of biologist Julian Huxley's idea that life is just one damn relatedness after another. So you must have mental models and you must see the relatedness and the effects from the relatedness. During a talk at Harvard in 1995 called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, he talks about Tupperware parties and open outcry auctions as examples of where people make bad decisions. He said three, four or five of these things, models, work together and it turns human brains into mush, meaning that normal people will be highly likely to succumb to multiple irrational tendencies all acting in the same direction. It's like the negative version of the Lollapalooza effect. In the Tupperware party example, you have reciprocation, consistency and commitment tendency and social proof. For example, the hostess gave the party and the tendency is to reciprocate. You say you like certain products during the party, so purchasing would be consistent with views you've committed to. Other people are buying, which is the social proof. So all of these things add up and you feel compelled to buy something you probably don't really need or want. In the open outcry auction scenario, there's social proof of others bidding, reciprocation tendency, commitment to buying the item, and deprivation super reaction syndrome, i.e. a sense of loss. He says that's an individual sense of loss for what he or she believes should be or is his or hers. These biases often occur at either conscious or a subconscious level and both in microeconomic and macroeconomic scale. So you you get, get yourself worked up and you think you deserve to own this house and then you can't stand to see somebody outbid you and so you go crazy with your bidding. And one of the things that Charlie often did um, was to invert. You've heard Tony talk about this a lot on the show. And he often talked about what to avoid. So what to not do. Focus on that, start on that, and then you can work out what you should do. Um, this is where he obviously he said, as I said earlier on, all I want to know is when I'm going to die, where I'm going to die, so I'll never go there. He talked about the chessboard and thinking about the more productive regions of his uh, strategy, thinking about eliminating unnecessary parts of the board that he didn't need to go to and focusing on the parts of the chessboard that he did want to occupy, as we would call it in chess. I don't know how many of you are chess players, but you tend to think of the board as the strategic positions that you really want to occupy, you want to focus your energy on, and you can ignore everything else. And he really tried to reduce everything down to the most basic unemotional fundamentals. Again, which is like what QAV is, right? We try and reduce the value proposition of an, of an investment in a stock down to something that's a completely unemotional decision. We're looking at the fundamentals, analyzing them as uh, rationally and logically as we can and letting the system spit out the decision what we should do. Um, but he said you also have to avoid what he called physics envy. 
The common human craving to reduce enormously complex systems, such as those in economics, to one-size-fits-all Newtonian formulas. Instead, he honoured Albert Einstein's admonition, a scientific theory should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, He also said, what I'm against is being very confident and feeling that you know for sure that your particular action will do more good than harm. You're dealing with highly complex systems wherein everything is interacting with everything else. And for me, that's, you know, part of what we're doing with QAV. We do try and reduce it down to an equation that is as simple as possible. But we also understand that we could be wrong when we make that decision. We don't get wedded to that idea. Again, this is where our cell triggers and the commodity cells and those sorts of things come into play, but particularly rule one. We can do our own analysis, but we also realize there's a lot of stuff going on that we're not aware of. Microeconomics, uh, sector industry stuff that we're not aware of. We can make bad decisions, and that's okay. We don't have to make every decision be the right decision. All we need is to get Six out of 10 decisions to be right. That's hard enough, as it is. Quote from uh, Charlie that I really like is, take a simple idea and take it seriously. He says, like world-class bridge player Richard Zeckhauser, Charlie scores himself not so much on whether he won the hand, but rather on how well he played it. While poor outcomes are excusable in the Munger Buffett world, given the fact that some outcomes are outside of their control, Sloppy preparation and decision-making are never excusable because they are controllable. Again, this is why we let the checklist determine our behavior. We make sure that all of our decisions are based on going through the checklist. And Charlie actually talks about checklists and airline pilots using checklists in one of his speeches. I think it's speech number five, if you want to go looking for it. He says, how can smart people so often be wrong? They don't do that I'm telling you to do. Use a checklist to be sure you get all the main modes and use them together in a multi-modular way. So I don't know if Tony came up with the idea of the checklist from Charlie or he came up with it independently, but, you know, great minds think alike, obviously. He also talks in the book, I think it was his first, the first speech in the book, which was a Harvard graduation speech when his son was graduating, one of his sons was graduating from Harvard, and he quoted a speech that Johnny Carson had given at a Harvard graduation speech some years earlier when his own son graduated. Here's what uh, Charlie had to say. He's talking about um, how to be miserable. What Carson said was that he couldn't tell the graduating class how to be happy, but he could tell them from personal experience How to Guarantee Misery. Carson's prescription for sure misery included, one, ingesting chemicals in an effort to alter mood or perception, two, envy, and three, resentment. I can still recall Carson's absolute conviction as he told how he had tried these things on occasion after occasion and had become miserable every time. It's easy to understand Carson's first prescription for misery ingesting chemicals. I add my voice. The four closest friends of my youth were highly intelligent, ethical, humorous types, favoured in person and background. Two are long dead with alcohol a contributing factor, and a third is a living alcoholic, if you call that living. What Carson did was to approach the study of how to create X by turning the question backward, that is, 
by studying how to create non-X. The great algebraist Jacobi had exactly the same approach as Carson and was known for his constant repetition of one phrase, invert, always invert. It is in the nature of things, as Jacobi knew, that many hard problems are best solved only when they are addressed backwards. Well, I could go on for hours quoting Charlie, and we no doubt will. I'm sure when Tony's back next week, he'll want to talk about Charlie as well, and I might add some more snippets from the book. But um, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Raise a toast uh, to Charles Munger and a life well lived, and also just for, for, I guess, teaching us and teaching Tony not only how to be a great investor, but how to live a great, generous life. Happy stock market. Quite a good week, and we'll be back next week. Ciao. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week. runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., Sign up for the two-week free trial and check it all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus. And then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.